Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present, and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we are going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Here we are, Marco. Sean, this is another audio signal where we talk about books, but Today it's not a book that uh, that is about ad adventures or narrative. It's uh, but is it? It's an adventure. It is an adventure. An adventure uh, many years in the making. And, and it's still uh, in the making. Still in the making. There's no no end in sight, and it requires a bit of uh, investigation to understand what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a very important topic, and we're gonna we're gonna disclose it in a little bit by introducing our guest. But it's uh, it's a topic that we have covered in other channels, other conversation. It's about uh, hackers and the perception of uh, of them, and uh, this when, goes way back in time. It's when the underground comes above ground and uh, reaches society, right? And we actually get to see all, all the work that's being done, good, good and bad. And the misconception between the two. And as usual, we yeah. invite somebody that wrote a book about it. Knows something about it. We don't know anything. Yeah, so we have uh, Joseph Men uh, joining us. Uh, really, really honored to have you on the show, Joseph. Thanks for joining. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So let let's start from uh, from the beginning. This is what we are about to talk about is your book about the the cult of the dead cow and some people may be like hey i know what it is and some other maybe like what the hell is that i don't know if they were following the news a few <laughs> few months ago or, or 30 years ago uh, but we're going to go back in time with uh, with these uh, hackers group and uh, what that has meant for the cybersecurity industry, for technology, for business, and for where we are now. But we'll start with you. How an investigative reporter like you decided to dig into that topic? Well, so I've been a, a journalist and been doing investigative work on technology specifically for 20 years. And um, the whole time I've been interested in cybersecurity because it was a complicated, important topic that covered lots of territory. It's a business story and a technology story, a criminal justice story. And, you know, for a long time now, it's been a geopolitical story as well. Um, it, it's, 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 uh, it's in bad shape. Uh, cybersecurity as a whole is, is not good enough. And um, 
it's hard to explain that to people and to try and figure out what to do about it. Um, so it's been the, so this is actually the second book I've written on the topic. Um, my day job is doing investigative stories, uh, for Reuters, but, um, I wrote a book 10 years ago called fatal system error. And it was basically the first book that sold any copies that, that said we're all screwed. Um, and I, I thought it was really important because it seems like people, people didn't realize how bad it was and how much worse it was going to get. And, you know, this one to try and what I always do with stories, particularly, you know, serious stories or books is to try and find really interesting heroes or villains that the reader will want to follow along with. And so, so the learning process is painless, you know, it's, it's enjoyable. Um, and fatal system error, I had a, a, a Californian, you know, security guy, young security guy, and um, a, a detective from the UK who did cybercrime. And they sort of teamed up to go after some Russian bad guys, some denial of service extortionists, and actually got them caught and locked up uh, for eight years in Russia, uh, which is something that is extraordinarily rare. And so that, that was a fun story in a way to illustrate really how screwed everything is. Because it took them, it took them, uh, it took them years. The detective almost got killed. Um, and it took like the UK foreign secretary calling his counterpart in Moscow and saying, we want help with this case. And even with all that, after they got the guys, they tried to go upstream and get like the master criminals and the Russian intelligence told them to, it was time to leave the country. So while there was a, like a happy story arc, the basic underlying thing was, is, is terrible. And then like the last chapter is all, Hey, here's some things we should do about it. So, that book said that, you know, we're all, we're all in deep yogurt. Um, and then there've been a number, many other books since then that have said like, you know, we're also screwed in this way. Um, they're screwed in that way. There's the military internet complex, there's surveillance, there's this, there's that, there's the other, it's all been really depressing. Um, and I didn't want to do another book that was just, you know, like, just like a corollary, uh, to the first or to those others. So instead, I tried to do something which is much harder, which is tell like a positive story about cybersecurity, like a reason to keep going to work if you're in the field or if you're not in the field, why you might consider it or what are the, the more like the, the broader social implications of, of hacking and security. And once I decided to do something like that, that was sort of like be hopefully inspiring and, and point, shine a light on stuff that works and why, um, the cult of the dead cow sort of presented itself as a pretty obvious choice. Um, for one reason is that they go all the way back to the beginning. Um, they're, you know, they were founded in the mid eighties. Um, so, I mean, not the beginning of computers, but, you know, predating the, the, the web and, and all that stuff that we know today. And they had to go through this sort of moral, moral evolution in a way that um, I think is very important and that everybody else can learn from. I just saw a quote yesterday that said that you should learn from others' mistakes because you'll never learn, live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself. And so they make plenty of mistakes and, and they learned. But they are, for those who've never heard of them, they are the, the oldest surviving American hacking group. They're the most famous uh, hacking group. And um, among their claims to fame, they coined the term hacktivism, uh, which is maybe more important today than it ever has been. Um, and they, uh, for people know them for different reasons, depending on when you came online, basically, if you came, came online before the beginning of time, then you know them for these funny, uh, and sometimes obscene countercultural text files, 
Um, they they were most famous. They had they they were the most famous provider of text files back in the bulletin board days. And then if you came of age a little later uh, and you're an actual hacker, you might know them for releasing Back Orifice and then Back Orifice 2000, which were Trojans that allowed basically anybody to take over somebody else's Windows machine, which a lot of people hated them for, and which was you know controversial even within the group. But it really, more than anything, forced Microsoft to take security more seriously, which is why they did it. And then much more recently, as, as this book went to press, they got famous again because I outed one of their members, you know, with everybody's permission, um, as a, as somebody who was running for the White House, <laughs> which is which is like still two years later. It was actually my story came out two years ago, and it still it still blows my mind that the, a legitimate, you know, prospect for the White House was not only a hacker, but was an early member of the most influential hacking group in U.S. history. It, it just it blows me away. That's Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, it's incredible, and, and the amount of things that they've done. And I want to, before we dig deep into the 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 CDC directly, I want to tap into your view of the industry and journalism and communications, and and perhaps this is the segue into the CDC of of the role of the hacking group, the hacking community, and perhaps what many see as the underground, right? So the security industry didn't exist 30 years ago, started to build, they kind of controlled the narrative. Journalists maybe didn't know what it was. So they, I mean, even today where it's just about breaches, right? We don't really know how to talk about security and journalism. It's, so so how, how, what's your view on the, on the progress there and the role of organizations like the CDC? Well, so there are a number of of really important things that you hit there. So one is sort of like the birth of the industry. Um, And, uh, you know, the the really good innovative work in security came from people who had been hackers as a kid. And, you know, one one of the things that's very different then from today is that, you know, everyone in the CDC pretty much in the early days and anybody who was online in the early days was a criminal. <laughs> and that's because you had to dial long distance. Kids, there was this thing called long distance um, to dial into a bulletin board. And it was super slow. And so you had these modems that were pow- powered by, you know, hamsters. And, you know, if you want to download a file, that's a couple hours. Um and so your parents would get hit with these $400 phone bills and, you know, that would be the end of that. So you would have to come up with a calling card number or a credit card number or somebody else's phone line or something. And therefore you were a hacker uh, and a criminal. And I think that's really interesting because it's not that this was, there was no blame associated with this. And it's not that it was a good thing uh, necessarily, but everybody who went into it had to develop their own sort of moral code. And, you know, many, many of that, for most of them, that evolved over time as the stakes rose and so forth and so on. But they really had to think about what the law was. Were they comfortable with breaking the law? Were they comfortable breaking the law in certain circumstances? Um, and there was this wide range of answers. And, you know, you wouldn't agree with all of them. I wouldn't agree with all of them. But they had to think about it. They had to put some, like, mental work into it. And that becomes very important because nowadays, you know, one of the core audiences I wrote for the book, uh, I wrote the book for, are people coming into cybersecurity now that it's a nice, clean industry. 
And you can go to a nice high school and a nice college and get a nice job at a big corporation doing cybery things without ever having to think about the moral trade-offs in what you do. And that's dangerous because if you don't have that kind of foundation, if you don't think about it, if you don't talk to others that have thought about it before you or learn from them one way or another, then you can get sleepwalked into doing stuff that is not good for anybody, like putting in back doors um, uh, or making products that don't really work and just sort of participating in FUD um, for marketing reasons. And that's not what cybersecurity should really be about. Cybersecurity is is better when it is closer to this, this sort of hacking roots where they're thinking about it. Now, to, to your other point about sort of the role of journalism, so this is really interesting. Like, um, I don't really like to think about marketing very much. I mean, as a as a reporter and particularly an investigative reporter, like I get pitched marketing stuff all the time. And I, while I like some of those people personally, I spend a lot of time hanging up on them because that's like the antithesis of what I do, right? I mean, I try and find out stuff that's important and obscured and bring it to light. And marketing is the opposite of that. So I don't have, I'm sort of like a natural opposite to, to the marketing instinct. And yet it turns out to be pretty important to get ideas out there. And one of the reasons that the CDC survived and thrived is because they, they sort of got that, that they, that, um, they actually, some of them, you know, went to college and learned marketing. And their their logo, the uh, of the uh, the cow skull with the crossed out eyes, is like super recognizable. And even when they were distributing text files, they they numbered them so that people would realize what they were missing, and everybody would want a complete set. I mean, there was lots of marketing in what they did. And the big back orifice release. They threw CDs into the crowd at DEFCON in 98, um, and they they ran to the media. They wanted media coverage because they knew that the only thing that would get move Microsoft, which was a court-certified monopoly off the dime, was you know somebody from NBC or the New York Times or whatever sticking a microphone in their face and saying, "This it seems like anybody can hack a Windows box. What are you going to do about it? And so they deliberately caused a media circus. So that was that was part of the... That was part of the operation. And I think like one of, you know, one of the core things of the group is they, they kept evolving outside of their skill set as needed to deal with major social problems. So they figured out how to testify before Congress, you know, also in 98, uh, when that didn't come naturally to them. Um, they learned how to mess with the media, you know, some pranking, some other stuff to get attention, to drive a, a higher uh, point across. Um, and then they learned how to like run big businesses. Uh, you know, they they founded um, Veracode, which is a billion dollar company now. You know, that didn't come naturally to them, but they they kept leveling up in these different ways to try and do good. Some went inside the government, some did private business. A lot of them did volunteer activism stuff on behalf of of oppressed folks around the world. Um, so they did all these things, and then they all got into politics. Um, so the the hacker mindset applies through through all of those things. And that's a really important thing to get out. You don't have to be super technical. These guys, in fact, so some of them were super technical. Others, you know, it was really like the, um, it was like the, the liberal arts wing of the hacker underground. They're the guys that sort of like express the, the ideas and the spirit more than the hardcore crime stuff, which is also why they got to survive. They weren't all locked up. Just to bring it back to end with the, the journalism thing today, when I started covering this stuff, there were like five of us. They covered this full time. And now there's easily 500. 
Um, and most of them are pretty average. And so you'll see lots of clickbaity biggest breach ever stories. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's much harder to talk about systemic issues, which really talented hackers are able to bring to light. And I think that's a higher calling and more important calling. Um, and so most of the stuff you read out there isn't very good, but that's, you know, that's true of everything. It is possible to find really good journalism about this stuff now, and it didn't used to be. Uh, so that that's a good thing. You just have to wade through a lot of crap. Yeah. Um, I mean, you just sum up so many things and I feel like we can go in so many different directions right now. So I feel like I got to pick one. What I'm going to pick, because my, my passion in understanding more this phenomenon uh, from a psychological and sociological uh, perspective, and also media. Um, I come from marketing myself, so I, I'm a big fan of you have to know the rules in order to break them. And uh, and that makes me connect to the hacker mentality as well. Like breaking the rules is one thing, breaking the laws is another thing, and the, th the, lean, the line is, is very thin. But at the beginning of it, as you said, we're talking about 1984, 13, 14 years old kids that are driven by curiosity. The year before was uh, the movie War Games. So there was already <laughs> something set up right there for the public to, to start receiving. And everything was driven by curiosity, the mindset of breaking the rules to make things better. And as you said, these guys were just smart enough to not just play that game for just for the game, but to have some uh, ethics, some business visions. And so everything started from, from the desire to, to be curious and what can you do with this new technology? So i like maybe to go back right at the beginning. Like, what have you learned as you were doing the research, talking with these guys? Like, when did they switch from a bunch of kids that were just having fun uh, with the name, with the slaughterhouse, that's where the name come from, to become a very powerful and meaningful force for where we are today? Well, there, there are a number of inflection points. I think it's important um, to think back to the beginning. And in the very early days, it was, there was, there was, um, it was self-selecting because it had to be people that were willing to put up with the aggravation to get these this clunky machinery to work. And so that meant that um, they tended to be, on average, um, either desperate for connection to people like them um, or to learn things that the Internet was just beginning to provide. Um, and they're willing to put up with, you know, a real, you know, it took some dedication. Um, and then there was this tremendous sense of community once they found each other and other people like them. Um, and so uh, that was one thing that is important about the, the mindset. As you said, curiosity is a major driver. Also, I think a need for connection. So a lot of them tended to be in isolated places, like they places where they didn't fit in. The, uh, the founder of the group, uh, Kevin Wheeler, is basically a, a, you know, a university parent's kid. And they moved from Ohio, where you know, he had buddies playing D&D &D and that sort of thing, to um, Lubbock, Texas. Um, when his, 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 his dad got a new job there and he did not fit in at all in Lubbock, Texas. So, you know, he was willing to spend a lot of time getting online to, to find other kids that were like him and to learn stuff about computers. Um, I think another thing you mentioned war games is that there's this kind of magic, like mini population bubble between, um, 80, 
three uh, when War Games comes out and teaches everybody that you can um, use a modem to get into all kinds of things. And 86 uh, when um, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act passes and everything that you've just learned to do is now illegal. Um, and so it's like you saw the promised land and then they took it away, or at least they put it behind glass. And it led the kids to question authority, I think, more. Because they did, they they realized, you know, for the most part, they weren't doing any harm. Uh, so what is this dumb law about anyway? So I think that was kind of like a big moment for them, sort of an inflection point. The other thing is that, you know, they started out, like, writing, among other things, mocking, mocking power, but also mocking, like, more sophisticated hackers who are actually getting away with stuff. Uh, Legion of Doom, Masters of Destruction, the people who are, like, hacking the backbones, who are, like, doing really impressive stuff. Um and they would, and, but, you know, full of the egos. And they sort of tried to puncture that. But they were secretly jealous. They wanted to be that technical. Um, but they were funny. And so they attracted um, people who did have technical skills, and particularly these guys from the loft, like Mudge and Dildog, uh, whose real names are, are Peter Zadko and um, Christian Rue. So, like, the technical people joined the cool kids. And then the group got more technical. Um, I think the other big evolution was was windows 95 because windows 95 so so even the technical guys were basically writing like the first um you know security uh bulletins and warning people about flaws in in enterprise software and stuff like that you know the the loft guys in particular would would sort of pioneer that kind of disclosure uh irresponsible and then so-called responsible disclosure where you cooperate with the vendor but it was still kind of like, you know, it was for businesses who were buying the software. And then Windows bundles in TCP IP, Microsoft bundles that into Windows 95, and suddenly everybody can get online. Um, and this, this, what had been kind of an arcane uh, pursuit of security issues suddenly is relevant to the entire freaking society. Because, you know, there's, you know, Rolling Stones songs, um, you know, and TV commercials telling everybody's grandmother to get online and nobody's saying, hey, wait a minute, there's actually no security at all. Um, and so I think they they realized that they actually knew something and they had to get out the word somehow through conventional means or unconventional means. Yeah, and I, w- I want to stick with this because you, you described the, the, the current state of security as clean. And... Uh, I mean, th- this was a, a group of rebels that you said questioned authority. And I'm wondering for today's society, t- students and young adults and and others that just kind of use technology now and don't even think about it for the most part, do, are we missing that rebel mentality? Because even, I hate to say it, even at least the public view of the ha- hacking community is fairly clean as well. There are bug bounty programs and platforms and and a lot of that is in, and connected directly to commercial entities that find value and spend money on this stuff. So it's clean and commercial in that sense too. Are, are we missing the rebel in the next generation? Yeah, absolutely. And is the, is the authority of the cybersecurity industry that we should be questioning? So there are a lot of things that are wrong with uh, the current clean profession including bug bounties, which in general are a good idea. Uh, Katie Masuris, who was a CDC fellow traveler and a pioneer in her own right, uh, 
it got Microsoft to pay its first bug bounties, got the Pentagon to pay the first bug bounties. And even she says that there are major problems with most bug bounty um, programs now. Among other things, they don't pay very much. Um, and so they can encourage people to go off and look for bugs. And once they find them, uh, they might do something much more profitable with them, including selling them to uh, the grain market. And it winds up in the hands of, you know, of not just dictators uh, that use them against their own people. So there, there, there are a number of... Um, of reasons why the cybersecurity industry needs to be questioned uh, a lot. Another is just like the marketing insanity and the and the greed and um, the obfuscation. Many cybersecurity companies get hacked. Uh, is one of the things that we we learned from uh, Solar Winds um, and related recent nation state hacks. Um, you know, security products are a great way to get into other things. And if you don't secure a security product, that's worse than not having a security product. So um, I wouldn't say that it's rebelliousness that's been lost so much as critical thinking. You know, I wrote this book under the former president uh, and there, and a lot of things, other things like Facebook and Twitter and a lot of real bad, stupid thinking getting spread very widely. Uh, we have a record number of people who think that the earth is flat. Uh, we have people who think that the COVID vaccines are a plot by Bill Gates to put microchips in us and track us. There's a lot of really bad, stupid stuff out there um, that is killing people. And hackers, to me, are critical thinkers more than anything else, because you're looking at a system not as, you know, not to see what it's designed to do, but what else it can be made to do. Um, what are the ways around it? If you're doing hacking right, you're not just like checking boxes for a compliance department. You know, you're um, you're exploring uh, and that critical thinking is a skill that applies way beyond InfoSec. It's a skill that is badly needed in politics, um, in social movements, in business and everything else. And, you know, we're, we're our education system is not very wonderful and we are not teaching enough critical thinking or we wouldn't be in some of this mess. And so in addition to sort of like thinking through moral issues for yourself, I think it's super important to realize the, the centrality of, of critical thinking. And that's one of the things I was trying to get out here. Yeah. So, Joseph, I was uh, looking at an interview you did with, uh, with Google um, about a year ago, I believe. And one thing that really stuck in my mind of uh, sociology thinking was that connection that you did with the age of these kids that come from parents, you know, they were probably all born in 68, 69, 71. They come from a family that has embraced rebellion. Like if you don't agree with something, just go outside and go in the street, protest the war, protest the system. It's it's okay. And, and I think that that's what ultimately fuel everything. I mean, every inventors, every scientist, it's, it's passionate about something and talking about the flat earth, we can look back at Galileo and how it's like, you know, take a telescope. He didn't invent it, but he made it better. And then he questioned things and he got in big trouble for that. So maybe, maybe that is what we're missing now. And I'm, I'm going to let you go with this because I'd like for you to make a connection with the smart move that these guys did into not just fighting the system, but getting into the system to fight it from the inside, to 
to get connected with the government, to get connected with the business itself, founding company. So, so yeah, that's an, that's another really key part of the the book and the the, the, the history of this culture that needs to be more widely understood. <clears throat> You're right. The, the same, you know, the kids who are coming of age in that magic early eighties window that I talked about earlier, were all born for the most part, you know, 68 through 71, which was, didn't mean that they were necessarily anti-government, but it was a time, you know, of great polarization in the United States over the Vietnam war and other issues. Um, and also, you know, the population, the population boom then that, that followed World War II. So there was definitely a greater willingness on average among people that age to have parents who questioned authority. And that was important because that was passed on to the kids. On the other hand, um, many of them had parents who worked for giant corporations or the U.S. government. Um, and so that's one of the things that's really interesting. That, you know, People who don't understand hacking culture think sort of miss the incredible range of people that are involved and have been involved. Um, so, I mean, the the great political turn, this sort of like the beginning to hacktivism within CDC, was when they're at this this sort of fame. They're the forefront of, the ha- of hacker culture, right when hacker culture was finally getting mainstream attention in like the late 90s. Um, and, you know, on the tail end of the great, you know, web bubble. Um, when security started to get really important and there were new companies getting formed and stuff. And DEF CON was like thousands and thousands and thousands of people and they're the stars of DEF CON. And they had this fame. And then they, and then like, so, like a newbie to the group, Oxblood Ruffin, said, well, what are you going to do with it? Are you just going to talk about InfoSec? Or are you going to talk about something more important? And he picked the right sort of wedge issue to force, force them to think about that. And that was China and the Great Firewall. Because there are people within CDC who worked for the government or contractors. And there are people in the CDC who hated the government and would never work for it. But nobody liked what China was doing with the Great Firewall and and, uh, monitoring and blocking stuff. Because one thing you can get most hackers to agree on is that there should be freedom of access to information um, with very, very few, if any, exceptions. Um, And so... Originally, hacktivism, the first sort of target for hacktivism was helping people evade the Great Firewall uh, and um, and read whatever they wanted online. And then there was privacy protecting browsers and stuff like that. And they contributed to stuff that sort of forced Tor to bundle in uh, a browser for the first time, um, this, you know, which is how everybody uses Tor today. So they had all this impact on that. And so... Um, there were plenty of divisions and arguments, and there certainly are today about what activism means. It means different things to different people, but um, a willingness to question authority um, is 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 a key part of it. And of the many definitions of activism that were thrown about, even within CDC, the one that resonates most with me is it was hacking and security work in service of human rights. That's kind of a universal way of looking at the world, and sometimes you can do that within the government. Uh, sometimes you can do that within a big corporation. You can certainly do it inside small companies and volunteer efforts. There are a lot more ways to do it now than there used to be. Um, and I, you know, I think it's kind of a, but you can do good stuff anywhere. I think it's still really an undecided point how much impact you can have within a big corporation, you know, run by a handful of people that don't see the world the same way you do. Um, 
one of the people in the book is Alex Stamos, who was inside Facebook, very high, eventually blew the whistle on, on Russian influence campaigns in 2016 after the fact, um, and went out of his lane to do that. And he wound up, you basically forced out of Facebook. So um, I think one of the takeaways is that you can do good work, but you need allies. And they can be within the company. They can be the users of the company. There can be uh, important people in Congress, certainly in the media. Um, and the way to get stuff done is to bring those sorts of things together around a set of issues or a single topic, leak <laughs> uh, when when need be um, to Congress or the press. Um, the whistle. The, there's a big connection with whistleblowing, and with some of the hacktivism we're seeing today against companies like Gab and Parler and Venkata and the government of Myanmar. There's a lot of very serious hacktivism today that it involves breaking some rules. Um, but let, let, let's talk about that, that, Joseph, because I, th- I think we. It's easy to miss the big picture of of why all this really matters, right? And you, safety and human rights ultimately is what really matters. Um, and it, uh, you described the, the, the CD Colton the cow's ability to communicate and market and leverage media and journalism to not just identify a problem, but formulate a story, tell that story, market that story. And, and we, you talk about whistleblowers that so that's not always a safe thing to do. For themselves so we talk about human rights what about hackers rights and and their ability to tell these stories and do so in a safe way it's very hard um and one of the problems is that um and there is great risk and one of the problems is, is like the people who tend to be the most inspired to do something that is um <clears throat> you know out of the mainstream and is is daring tend to be younger people <laughs> and unfortunately, what you really need above all is decent operational security. Um, and that tends to be something that's acquired with age uh, because it is hard. It is really hard to pull off a, um, a major, you know, hack in the non, non-criminal or criminal sense and not get caught, um, particularly if you're going to call attention to yourself by releasing what you found. Um, So um, there, there are, there are. Find the if you decide to go off in this direction, and I'm not endorsing lawbreaking. I'm saying there's a continuum, um, and that laws don't always comport with what's ethical. Um, uh, there's a there's a guy in the book, the founder of Duo Security, uh, Doug Song, who talks about uh, the the matrix in um, in uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, where it's not good versus evil. It's like there's one axis that's good to evil, and there's another axis that is chaotic to lawful. And you know, Hitler was law-abiding, um, but was evil. So there's there's a lawful, that's lawful evil. And I, one of the the lines towards the end of the book is that if you know we need there needs to be more good in the world. If it can't be lawful, then let it be chaotic. Um, hackers, ethically driven hackers, are tend to be chaotic good, um, many of them. And um, it, to pull this stuff off, um, you should go really educate yourself about operational security. And this is hard in a time when there is increasing surveillance, where the feds are decrying 
end-to-end encryption, uh, which is an essential tool um, for anybody who does anything remotely human rightsy or journalistic or um, or minority political. Um, I mean, everything is hacked. Like one of the few things that that works is end-to-end encryption. And you know, I, I know I covered this stuff, but I, you know, I my opinion is obvious that that you know the the people that have the most to lose um, from end-to-end encryption going away are the people who are the most oppressed. And um, it is, if, if the governments of China, the U.S., and Russia all agree on something, then we should all look at it skeptically. Um, and they all hate you know, end-to-end encryption. So, um, I, 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 I'm sorry, I don't, I, don't, I don't have anything more to say on that point, I guess. Well, I think you said quite enough (laughs) to be honest uh, we're gonna wrap here because you know the the time restraint that we self-impose to ourselves. because again if it was for sean and i we would be here and have lunch together as we as we talk as well uh (laughs) or dinner depending where you are so i i guess the the final thought that i'm that i'm gonna use to close here is that uh, we need in our society and this is what i think this book uh teaches or at least create an awakening alert and alarm in people that may, yeah, that maybe they got to start thinking for their own. They need to question everything, you know, like hack the world. It doesn't mean do evil. It means question everything that is fed to you and don't just believe to all the fake information nowadays that we get on social media. We didn't go there. We didn't go in all the bubble of fake news and, and how they perpetrate themselves. And you need somebody there that says, wait a minute, this is BS, <laughs> right? So the critical thinking and, and the morality, I think, behind this, all of this. And again, like you said, I, I'm not saying every hacker is a good guy. There is... It's a business, so those are the cyber criminal. But that mentality, I think, is the blood and the, and the fire in, in, in our society, in the young people, and we should encourage that. Instead of say, these are the rules, just follow the rule, like yeah, teach critical thinking. I think that would be essential. So that, that's my final take, Sean. I'm going to let you wrap it and, of course, invite everybody to to read the book as uh that's yeah certainly read the book certainly read the book and and i would say that to to your last point there marco i, I it, it's it can be a good thing to be a hacker and I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of the media these days portrays that that role in society is a bad thing and it, it, it's there's an opportunity for everybody to question everything and for some of society to even push the boundaries and and go a little deeper and highlight stuff that's not that's not working for us just because it's happening doesn't mean it's right so and hacking is not just about technology you don't need to be a programmer one thing about the 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 cult of the dead cow is that there was people there they were not necessarily the best programmer the best hacker but they were hacking the system that's that's what absolutely the way we think yeah it's all kinds of stuff so joseph phenomenal to have you on the show really appreciate your time and and uh sharing your experiences with us uh, a deeper view into the book and how you put it together and, and why and and most importantly why this matters so thanks so much enjoy talking to you
Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com.